Did you guys hear about the world's greatest underwater spy? James Pond. <laughs> you know what lies at the bottom of the sea and shivers? A nervous wreck. <laughs> All right. I had to fulfill my dad duty by tossing a couple of those jokes in. Good morning. As Ben said, my name is John Stallsmith, my wife Amy. And I pastor over at Grace Snellville. It's a great honor to be with you this morning and to pick up in this series, We Are Grace. And this morning, of those values and identity statements we saw in the video, I feel like I have drawn the best of the values. We are pioneers. And that is a phrase that, unfortunately, is not always associated with churches. In fact, 15 years ago, when I was fresh out of college and about to join uh, the Grace staff as an intern, I remember talking with Buddy Hoffman, who was the founder of the Grace family of churches, and saying, okay, this sounds fun, I can live in your basement, there's some cool guys down here, I think I'd learn a lot about God, and maybe do some meaningful stuff, but I'm young. I'm single, and I really want to have some adventures, and I'm worried if I come and work for a church, I won't have any adventures. And Buddy, if you knew Buddy, sat back in his chair and kind of laughed and goes, <laughs> I think we can find some adventures for you. And so, in these 15 years at Grace, for me, it has been a succession of one great adventure after another, and it's been beautiful, and I really do feel the sense of living into the words, we are pioneers, is a great, uh, just life-giving sort of calling, and I hope this morning that as we open the scriptures together, we will all have that sense of how God calls us forward to be pioneers. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, and we're just going to do two verses. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can slip up your hand. We'll put a Bible in your hand. And while you're turning to Hebrews 12, I want you to think about a question. Who is your favorite pioneer? So maybe you think of Neil Armstrong, the first human being to walk on the moon. Or, or maybe you think of Jackie Robinson, who broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball in 1947. Maybe you think of Amelia Earhart, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Maybe when you hear the word pioneer, you think about Pioneers of technology, Steve Jobs, who spearheaded innovation to the max. Get it? <laughs> M-A-C-S, to the max. Dad joke. Chalk up another one for me. And just as a side note, some jokes do work better in print. I, th I think that's probably that one. Uh, maybe when you hear the word pioneer, you think of Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea going all the way across to the Pacific Ocean through the American frontier. Or, or maybe the word pioneer triggers another adventure of westward expansion and exploration, something like this. Anybody play Oregon Trail growing up? Mary has a broken arm, but good news, we've got 1,440 pounds of food in the wagon, 
Somebody must have gone out hunting for bison earlier in the day. Uh, maybe your favorite pioneer is the pioneer woman herself, Ree Drummond. Any, any pioneer woman fans out there? And um, her, her recipes, if you ever tried to cook them, actually do explore the extreme frontiers of using butter. I don't know if you've, if you've done that before. It's just incredible how much butter she can pack into a recipe. But whether it's space travel or sports or aviation or innovation or clocking the wagon to float across the flooded Missouri River, the word pioneer for many of us evokes something powerful. It's, it's that idea of exploration of the frontier, crossing barriers. It's catching that breath of fresh mountain air as you look at the horizon and feel the electric exhilaration of knowing that you are fully alive. And so this morning we're going to look at another pioneer who may in fact end up being your favorite. This is Hebrews 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, most commentators say that these verses are really the pinnacle and the main point of the entire book of Hebrews. Now, the context of this letter to the church, it was most likely written to the early Jewish believers who were in the Roman world, and as they tried to follow Jesus, they were beginning to experience some significant persecution and hardship. And so they were sort of on the fence as a community, wondering, should we go back to our old Jewish way, or should we press forward and keep following this Jesus? And so Hebrews, if you've read it, you might remember, it, it goes through kind of systematically and shows how the way of Jesus is better than any other way. He's better than the former words of the Old Testament prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than the way of Moses. He's better than the priesthood. All those things had value, but they were incomplete because they were merely foreshadowing and preparation for the true and better Jesus. And so here in Hebrews 12, our author and we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews, but our author reaches that pinnacle of the argument and says, keep following Jesus. He's worth it. Your faith will pay off. Let us run with perseverance that race marked out for us. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And this is so interesting to me. We who call on the name of Jesus, we are pioneers because Jesus is a pioneer. And that word in the original language is very rich. Sometimes it is translated as founder or source or author. One scholar kind of says this about it, given its full range of meaning, the, the full range of meaning, that word pioneer, 
It designates an individual who opened the way into a new area for others to follow, founded the city in which they dwelt, gave his name to the community, fought its battles and secured the victory, and then remained as the leader, ruler, hero of his people. Wow, what a word, pioneer. But if you think about it, Jesus' life on earth was marked by one pioneering event after another. Of course, he came, first of all, from heaven to earth to be born in Bethlehem, a journey even more intrepid than trying to make it all the way to the end of the Oregon Trail. And then when he was on earth, he crossed boundary after boundary. He touched the lepers to heal them. He welcomed sinners and outcasts into respectable homes. He upended any legalism that failed to reflect the heart of God. He would go intentionally to non-Jewish communities, and there he would share life with folks from all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds. Of course, he went to the cross and passed through that ultimate human frontier, death itself, and he passed into the other side, resurrection life. And so when it says that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of faith, it means that he blazed a new trail for God's rule and reign, his kingdom to establish a new and redeemed humanity whose home is the heavenly city and whose ruler is Christ. And if, as it says in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature, then we realize that this pioneering activity of Jesus is in fact an attribute of God himself. Have you thought about that as an attribute of God, that God is a pioneer? Creating the cosmos is a very pioneering kind of thing to do. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, he pursued them in the garden. When he called Abraham, he said, go to the land that I'm going to show you. With Moses, he liberated these Israelites out of slavery, sent them into the new promised land where they would live. Even the exile, when God's people were scattered into the farthest reaches of the empire, all the way out to Babylon, God was at work making sure that his light and his goodness was known even among those wild and distant nations. And so this, this activity of God is also pioneering. And so this is why at Grace, we are pioneers. This is why at Grace, we expect that God will be leading us into new things and new frontiers. And this is also why anytime a church gets stuck in the past, curating once, what once was rather than going with God to the frontier, it is a tragic betrayal of our birthright. Now, at the same time, I know that for some, the word pioneer can trigger more caution than courage. And there are even statistics that look at personality types that back this up. Some of you may have taken that Myers-Briggs test, you know, introvert, extrovert, you kind of go through and it tells you how you see the world in certain ways. And those tests, you know, nothing is perfect and they all have shortcomings, but I do find one of those categories very interesting 
the second letter in your Myers-Briggs profile, if you've ever taken it, is between intuitive and sensor. And the description of a sensor, someone who comes back with a high score on that S category, is someone who is most comfortable with what they know, what they've experienced, what, what is right around them, what they can see and touch and sense. And they're second most comfortable with what they have already experienced. So the future and the unknown is not a sensor's favorite thing to think about. Whereas the intuitive people, if you come back with an N on that category, you gravitate toward the unknown. You're living into the future, dreaming about the future, can't wait to find out what's up there. And so out of all the people who take the Myers-Briggs test, about three of every four, 75% of people are S's that prefer what we know right here. So that means even in this room, only about one in four, if we follow those statistics, is really jiving with that pioneer spirit. Although I'm guessing we may have more than one in four in this room because not only are you linked in with this Grace family of churches, but you are enthusiastically pioneering this new church here at Grace Marietta in its early years and in its, in its infancy. And so there's a likelihood that many of you actually, more than statistically would be reflecting that Myers-Briggs test, are here because you're excited about pioneering something new with God. But whether you are stoked about being a pioneer or you're circumspect about this word, the big question we need to answer is how do we follow Jesus in this aspect of his character? How do we follow Jesus, the pioneer? And so we're going to sort of apply this in three practical ways. First, the perspective of a pioneer. Then we'll talk a little bit about the path of a pioneer. And finally, the posture of a pioneer. Now, the perspective of a pioneer means finding your frontier. And perspective is super important. Robert Clinton studied leaders and, and has written all about biblical and Christian leaders and their lives and everything else. And what he says about perspective is that it is the difference between leaders and followers. So leaders have perspective from which they can lead. And then he says that the difference between good leaders and leaders is better perspective. And so our question is, what is the perspective of a pioneer? And in the verse, in verse 1, we begin to get some clues. The author of Hebrews says, Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What is the race marked out for us? What is the race marked out for you and for me? And so in a general sense, that race marked out for us is trusting Jesus to save us from sin and Satan, relying on his grace, following him. And in a messed up world, the effort to live righteously is by definition, a pioneering against the current sort of way to live. But then even beyond that general sense of the race called, that we're called to, is sort of a specific understanding of the race marked out for each one of us. That 
takes into account our unique combination of life and circumstance, gifting, and opportunity. And Hebrews 12 comes right after Hebrews 11, obviously. <laughs> and Hebrews 11, if you're familiar with that famous chapter of the Bible, tells the stories of these heroes of the faith. Walking through Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses. And as you go through those stories, what you find is that each one of those heroes of the faith had a unique calling, had a unique race marked out for them that took into account their lives, their circumstances, their gifting, their opportunities. And so the challenge is how do we figure out, how do we find, how do we run the race that God is calling each one of us to? And so one of the things that's been helpful for me, gaining that perspective of a pioneer, is looking back at some of the stories of the great pioneers of the Christian faith through history. So maybe you know Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They're pretty famous 20th century missionaries they went down to and I think we have a slide of them as well uh, but they went down to the jungles of Ecuador to work with the Warani people and if you remember the story Jim and four of his companions were there trying to make initial contact with this tribal group that had an incredible reputation for brutal murder they're very violent people and so all five of the guys were speared down there next to the river in the Amazon and then Elizabeth and one of the other guy's sisters, so Rachel Saint, who was the sister of Nate Saint, one of the guys killed down there, went back into that tribe, learned the language, and ended up leading a bunch of those tribal peoples to come to trust Jesus. Incredible story of courage. Or maybe if we dial back a little farther, a very famous explorer from the Christian faith, David Livingstone. I don't know if you know his story, but he was born in Scotland to a working class family. By the age of 10, he was working 12-hour days in the mill. He was able to get an education and become a medical doctor, after which he went down to Africa and became a world-famous explorer. And he was, in fact, one of the very first Europeans to see all sorts of different places in Central Africa. But his intention for exploration was incredibly noble. His race, as he saw it, was actually to supplant the slave trade that was running rampant through Africa at that time. And so he wanted to chart out the rivers so that people could put in commerce and trade that would make the slave trade less lucrative. And so he was this incredible pioneer bringing good news of Jesus and exploration and trying to change a whole structure and system of slavery in Africa. Other pioneers, Lot Carey was a slave in the United States. He was able to purchase his own freedom along with the freedom of his two sons for $850. And he became a pastor in Richmond, Virginia. And then after that, he moved all the way over to Liberia in Africa to begin working with tribal peoples there. Another pioneer, David Brainerd. A lot of people were influenced by David Brainerd, even though his life was quite short. He had a heart to reach the Native American communities. He originally attended Yale, but he got expelled from Yale for being too passionate about God. And he died young of, of illness. 
Maybe some of you know Pandita Ramabai. She's a very, very famous Christian leader in India. She grew up in a high caste family. She was a Sanskrit scholar and she came to Christ. And so she began to campaign against the practice of child marriage, which was very common in India at the time. She also advocated for education and the name of Jesus. And so she was this incredible pioneer in India whose name to this day comes with great, great honor. Or maybe Ramon Lul, who is known as the father of the Catalan language. But he was from Spain in, if you see the dates up there, the 14th, 13th, 14th century. And if you remember your history, Spain at that time was in the midst of a major war to take back their, their peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula, from the Muslim communities who had come up and conquered them beginning back in the year 711 AD. And so Lul decided that he was going to try to engage the Muslim communities. He learned Arabic. He was one of the first Western Europeans to do so. And he went to North Africa where he actually died trying to share the name of Jesus with the Muslim communities there. Now these, of course, are pretty singular, extreme, and exotic examples of pioneers. But I find it so helpful to read and remember their stories because it reminds us that through our history, those of us who've called on the name of Jesus have many examples of pioneers. And this is just a smattering, a handful. But in addition to sort of the exotic overseas races that Jesus calls some of us to run, there are also sort of the everyday frontiers before us. That these frontiers aren't just then and there, but they're also here and now. For some of us, the frontier that is yet unexplored is loving that one person in your family who is so difficult to love, or maybe who caused a great deal of pain to you in your life. For some of us, that undiscovered frontier is pursuing a career path that has long lurked in our heart, but we've never quite gotten over the hump to say, yes, I'm going to go back to school. Yes, I'm going to pursue that. Yes, I'm going to go after that thing. For some of you, you know what it's like to be a pioneer in your own family trusting Jesus. For some families, you are the first in your family to really trust Jesus. And you know the challenges and the costs associated with that decision. Maybe it's moving into a new neighborhood, or maybe it's just talking to the neighbors that you have now. Whatever it is, we can expect that if we're following Jesus, and Jesus is a pioneer, he will lead us into new and unknown places. And that raises this question, when God calls us toward those unknown places, will we respond with faith to go or fear that justifies disobedience? In Ephesians 2, it says, God has prepared good works for us to walk in. What's waiting out there for us? And here's what we can know for sure. In this perspective of a pioneer discerning the race ahead of us, it will require faith. If you look at the road ahead and you say, oh yeah, I totally got this. 
That's <laughs> pretty easy, actually. I could coast next 15 or 20 years on that road. It's probably not the race marked out for you. Almost certainly, the frontier ahead of you will require faith. I think about this often in light of grace as a family of churches. And some of you guys have been around the Grace family for a while. I see some familiar faces here, but others of you may be a little bit newer. And, and so maybe you've heard about, as a church family, our collective sense of heart and calling to engage the Muslim world. We have training called Jesus and the Quran that we do periodically at the Grace churches. And before I started leading at Grace Snellville, I was our mission pastor, sort of for the family of churches. Spent about seven years doing that, and so this is something that's really close to my heart as well. But that calling to the Muslim world really emerged in the direct aftermath of the attacks on the World Trade Center in 2001 and 9-11. And so at that time, there was only one Grace Church. It was Grace Snellville. It's called Grace Fellowship at the time. And after that, the elders of the church, like that next couple of days after that Tuesday, said, we need to have a response for New York, and we need to have a response to the Muslim world. And so we mobilized a team out of grace to go up to Manhattan, and they spent some time there ministering to the first responders, working with uh, people in New York, praying for them. And during that time, Buddy, our founding pastor, had this profound experience where he really sensed God was calling us as a church to engage the Muslim communities of the world, and even the Muslim communities around us in Atlanta. Now, if you remember September 2001, that was not a popular direction for anyone to take. I mean, there were military forces getting mobilized, and even within the church, in the aftermath of those attacks, there was a sense of Islamophobia that began to emerge, that we don't like those people, they're our enemies, and we had a difficult time differentiating between radical extremist Muslim terrorists and the 1.5, 1.6 billion Muslims on the planet. And so when Buddy came back from New York and began to call our church into that ministry, to say, we are not going to surrender to fear. We're actually going to step forward in faith and see how we might build relationships with our Muslim friends. It was not exactly a popular decision. People were not going, woohoo, that's definitely what we need to do right now. It was a frontier, it was a pioneering direction. And when I joined staff in 2004, my first experience, my first adventure that Buddy found for me was going to London. And we were over there trying to figure out how to talk to Muslims. We got some training. We were out on the streets sharing our faith with our Muslim friends. Not friends, our Muslim, uh, the people we met. And uh, we offended them, and, and they got frustrated with us. A couple of our friends on our team got beat up on the street. And so that was kind of a new experience for me. I didn't really know what was going on. And then a few months later, I was back in Atlanta, and Buddy had an invitation to go over to Lebanon to work with some Muslim communities there. And he's like, hey, John, you want to go to Lebanon? And for me, I don't know why I was, but Lebanon, that was the threshold. That was the thing that really struck me. I thought, oh, man, Lebanon. I mean, London, that's cool. Lebanon was very scary to me. 
And I had graduated from Furman up in Greenville with a degree in history, so I had studied some of the stuff that had gone on in Lebanon, the Civil War, and, and, and you know, American soldiers getting killed there. And so I just remember, for whatever reason, when that showed up on the horizon, the race marked out for me, suddenly there's an invitation to Lebanon, I was in the grip of that fear or faith moment. And I spent several days really praying about it, because in my mind, I thought going to Lebanon means I might die, and if I might die, do I want to follow Jesus even if it could potentially kill me? And I, uh, I had to work that out, and I wrestled with God about it, and then I eventually said, yeah, I, I think that I need to go to Lebanon. I think that is the race marked out for me. So we went to Lebanon. Turned out it was totally fine. They have great breakfast there. It's a beautiful country. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was fantastic. Nothing life-threatening happened. A couple trips later, there was a car bomb that went off pretty close by. No one was hurt. So anyway, these are the things that we have to settle as we gain that perspective of a pioneer. And that, as we think about the perspective of a pioneer, causes us to lean into the question of the path of a pioneer. Because a pioneer's path is always marked with both great cost and great gain. And that's what we see in Jesus, who is the model pioneer here in Hebrews 12. When Jesus came to earth, he knew that there was going to be a cross involved. He knew that this would be costly, that he would be disrupting the status quo and disturbing the institutions of evil. And so when Jesus went to the cross, just think about the cost involved. His reputation, his relationships, his possessions, physical pain, obviously, and of course, death. You know, among military folks and law enforcement, they have this phrase, the first guy through the door gets bloody. And that is a true statement about pioneers, that that pioneering into new territory and new frontiers often brings with it cost. And you start to wonder, well, if it's so costly, why would you do it? And Hebrews tells us, Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. He despised the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. That Jesus knew pioneering in this way through death and out the other side into resurrection life would mean that he could be united with the people he dearly loved in a way that had never before been available. For Jesus, the primary discovery as a pioneer of faith was the discovery of joy. And that's what we have to keep in mind. It's easy to become overwhelmed with the potential cost of pioneering. And don't get me wrong, it will be costly. We cannot allow the cost to overshadow the gain. That path, yes, it will be costly, but there is also gain. And the gain so often for all pioneers, not just Jesus, is joy. The joy of new discovery, the joy of new life, the joy of knowing God, the joy of new authority. It's that moment of exploration, new frontiers, crossing barriers, catching that breath of mountain 
air as you look at the horizon and feeling the electric exhilaration of knowing you're fully alive. And so when it comes to Grace's journey, engaging the Muslim community, it has been costly. As Buddy and I looked back before his death about a year and a half ago, we were talking about that cost. And we said, you know, probably across the entire Grace family of churches, there were a lot of people who did not like what we were doing. They didn't want us to talk about Muslims. They didn't have a heart for the Muslim world. They said, I don't want to be a part of a church that's involved with those people. And so we looked back and we thought, you know what, probably about 1,000 people over a 10 or 15 year period left the church over this issue. So there's a cost involved, very real cost. But at the same time, we started telling the stories of refugee and immigrant families in Clarkston who were fleeing from Iraq, Afghanistan, other Muslim areas, who had found gainful employment, had found meaningful relationship with Jesus followers, and some of whom had begun following Jesus themselves. We started telling stories about Kosovo, where we have a team right now of Grace folks working with the next generation. We just had a medical team come back from Kosovo. And we told those stories about the young people now who are following Jesus. We started telling stories about people from within Grace congregations who said years after beginning that journey of talking and befriending their Muslim neighbors, I never thought that I would ever get to know a Muslim and now I can't imagine my life without them in it. And when you start adding up those things and you ask the question, would we go through the same cost for this game? The answer was overwhelmingly yes. When you look back and you see what God does with the sacrifices of pioneers, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't retreat on that. I, like, yeah, let's go forward. And that reminder for me, and then looking at the other stories of the faith and leaders in the history of the Christian tradition, when you look at their stories, it gives us courage to walk that path, even though it may be costly. Now, this whole story of being a pioneer, as we've said, comes on the heels of that Hebrews 11 chapter that talks all about faith and walking by faith and trusting God. And so this morning, I'm thinking about being a dad. And what does it mean to pioneer as a dad on Father's Day? And the interesting thing is one of the greatest gifts that we as fathers can give to our children is this sort of trailblazing life of faith. This is one thing that any father, that every father can give to his children. I mean, not all of us are wealthy and will be able to pass on loads of money to our kids. And not all of us know how to do our kids' geometry homework, right? And not all of us even really have a lot of time outside of providing for our families to be able to just spend days on end with our kids. But passing on a heritage and a legacy of trusting God, a, a heritage of faith, that is something that is available to every one of us who's a dad. We can give them the path of faith that we have walked, regardless of our socioeconomic background, our ethnic background, our smarts, our schedule, 
we can give them an example of faith. And that doesn't mean that we have the answer to every Bible question. Passing on that legacy and that heritage of faith to our children, to the next generation, doesn't mean that you're running Bible studies all the time at home. That actually might go counter to the purpose if you did that endlessly. But rather, it's that, that courage to face new things. And then when your children face those same things, they've seen in you that example that says, yes, we trust Jesus, and we have nothing to fear here. And this role of passing on faith, it doesn't demand perfection. Just look at Hebrews 11 and the stories of Noah and Abraham and Moses as dads. Noah, example of faith, amazing guy, builds the ark, gets his kids in there, survives the flood, gets on dry ground, plants a vineyard to grow grapes, makes wine, gets drunk, passes out. Big family problems after that. And yet in Hebrews 11, he's held up as an example of faith. Abraham, you guys know his story. Every time he was afraid of getting killed, he'd lie about Sarah being his wife. He fathered Ishmael by the handservant Hagar and then kicked Ishmael out of the house when there was conflict among the tents. And he's held up as this paragon of faith. A dad whose life, even though there were moments of weakness, whose life embodied that forward, pioneering look, when God said, go to the land that I will show you, he said, I'll go. And he kept walking and he kept walking. Did he make mistakes along the way? Yeah, he made some really big ones. But he passed on that heritage of faith from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and on to the people of Israel. And that's our challenge as well, as dads especially. How do we lay out a path of faith that is costly but rewarding? And our children can look at that and say, okay, I see that this way of living, following Jesus, is costly. But I also see the gain. I see the joy that comes through it. And that leads us toward that third little point of application, the posture of a pioneer. What is the posture of a pioneer. And this, to me, is caught up in this little phrase of leaning in. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. That we lean in to look, to see where he's going, that we might follow him. And, and I know that when we talk about pioneering, whether it's in the Muslim community or it's in a new church plant just a couple years into its life cycle here in Marietta, or just personal ways of your own life as you're beginning to think about the thresholds and the frontiers. I know this can be a little bit intimidating. If you're younger, you might be looking at the world going, I've got energy, I've got opportunity, but I could go anywhere. I mean, everything is a frontier. Where do I go? And for others of you, you might be in that stage of life where you're married and you've got a mortgage and you've got some kids and you're saying, this is not exactly the best time to hop into a canoe with Lewis and Clark and just take like a multi-year voyage out to the Pacific Ocean. That'd be more escapism than pioneering at this point. And some of you may be in that stage a little bit farther along in life saying, I've had my adventures, I've done my pioneering. And now I'm ready to sit back and settle down. I've done my service. And here's the thing, as we're looking at this passage, we're listening to this message, I'm not telling you that you have to move to Tajikistan tomorrow, okay? Remember, the passage says, run your race. 
But every race is going to require faith. And as we approach life, we can either have a posture of fear or we can have a posture of faith. And the way that I think about this is really through baseball analogies. I grew up playing baseball. I played in high school. I played in college. Actually, we won the state tournament back in Wisconsin where I grew up in 1998. And so this weekend, uh, Amy and I were up in Milwaukee for the 20-year anniversary of our <laughs> state championship game. And I am pleased to report. People said, well, did you win? Because we played a little alumni game after that. We got all the 98 guys, and we played against some of the younger guys. And people said, did you win? And I say, well, none of us was severely injured, so yes. <laughs> when we got back to the hotel, Amy and I went and emptied out every ice machine on the floor at the hotel, and we filled up our bathtub, and I just sat in the ice bath. And so that's why I'm able to stand before you here today <laughs> to preach this message. No, but, but anyway, so growing up, I, I, I played a lot of third base. And if you've played baseball or if you coach your kids or, you know, your kids play baseball, you know that one of the things you have to overcome as a baseball player is a fear of the ball, especially if you're on the infield because you've got a pitcher throwing pitches to the batter who's then hitting balls at you. And this is a hard ball, and if it hits you, it hurts. And one of the only ways to overcome the fear of the ball is to actually get hit a few times and realize it didn't kill you. I actually got hit in the mouth when I was nine years old and knocked this tooth out and uh, now I have a fake tooth here because I had to learn that I didn't need to be afraid of the ball. Although in that case, I should have been a little more afraid of the ball. <laughs> but here's the thing. The coaches, as you learn to play infield, the coaches train you to do something that is counterintuitive, okay? And especially at third base, they call it the hot corner because typically you're the closest to the batter on the infield and a lot of baseballs come at you very quickly. And so as every pitch is being delivered, they tell you as a third baseman to take a step in toward the batter and rock forward onto the balls of your feet so that you're fully in an athletic position with a little bit of momentum forward as the pitch is arriving at the batter. And if you go to a baseball game, if you go to the Braves game or, or you watch another live baseball game, virtually every infielder who's any good at all, you will see every time a pitch goes in, you can watch those infielders They'll be rocking forward onto the balls of their feet. They'll be getting their knees bent. They'll be moving in just like that. And to me, that's such a helpful image for what it means to live with the posture of a pioneer, that we spend our lives moving in, moving toward, moving at the frontier. Even though it might be frightening and we don't know what's coming and something might catch us in the mouth, we still realize that we are toast if we sit back on our heels. And that's the other thing. If you're playing third base and you're back on your heels and a guy hits a rocket at you, you are stuck to the ground. You can't move. You're more likely to get hit on your heels than you are moving in like this on your toes. And this is the posture of a pioneer. I just think about all the undiscovered adventures before you as a congregation, as a church. I'm just so pleased to see you here worshiping. And, and you know, we hear stories from Ben about Grace Marietta and we pray for you guys over at Snellville, and I've been out here a few times, but just even this morning being here with you, I have the sense that, that you too are a pioneering people. You know, David Livingstone, we saw his picture, the, the missionary guy in Africa, he was the first European to see Victoria Falls, which is probably the most spectacular waterfall complex in the entire world. 
And who knew when he was growing up in Scotland that having that posture of a pioneer moving in toward the adventures that God was calling him to would result in that incredible vista. Yeah, he got malaria like a bunch of times along the way, but he was the first European guy to see Victoria Falls. And I think about for you as a church, what adventures, what landmarks, what incredible vistas are yet undiscovered for you as a church, just waiting there, prepared by God as you walk that path of a pioneer. And so I want you to just stand up with me and I want you to feel that posture. This is where we'll close the sermon, right here. I just want you to feel the difference physically in your body as you rock forward onto the balls of your feet, right? So just feel that moving forward. I know you're in pew, so you can't like get all the way down into like an infielder's position, but just even feel that much. Knees, just shoulder width apart, slightly bent, rocking forward. That's the posture of a pioneer. Now go back on your heels. If you stand on your heels, I mean, it's very easy to stumble. That's a posture of fearfulness. Rock forward under the balls of your feet. This is where we live as followers of Jesus, knowing that he is a pioneer, going into frontiers, and we are following him there. And even now, as we respond in worship, we've got the communion set here at the front, also at the back, that reminder that Jesus' body was broken and blood was shed for our sins. But sometimes we can treat communion through that word remember as something that ties us backward. And what I want you to remember this morning, if you come forward to receive communion or if you go to the back to receive communion, that this remembrance is not just of what Jesus did. It's a remembrance that he is alive. That Jesus is alive and that he is a pioneer and that he has gone before you and as he calls you to run the race that he's called you to run, there is nothing to fear. So Lord, we thank you for this congregation. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for dads. We thank you for those who've gone before us, the cloud of witnesses who have seen you faithful on the road of the pioneer. And Lord, I pray for each of us as we begin to gain that clear perspective on the next frontier, on the undiscovered country, that mountain to climb and the trail to blaze. Lord, I just pray that you would speak gently but firmly to our hearts, words of courage. Lord, help us to lean in as we follow you, our true king. In your name we pray.